Welcome in to News and Views with Tom Lamprecht. The stories you've heard and the ones you need to hear. The attack against the nuclear power plant. To Europe's biggest nuclear power plant. If there is an explosion, it will be the end of everything. End of Europe. Somebody in Russia has to step up to the plate take this guy out. We are importing Russian oil right now. If you cut off Russian oil, then we've got to produce more here. I'm all for that. Ban it. The days to come are likely to be worse. Your life, your values, your voice. This is News and Views with Tom Lamprecht on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. All right, welcome in. It is Friday. More News and Views. Appropriately today, March the 4th, 2022, is World Day of Prayer, and uh, we need it. So uh, take the time as you uh, sit down for your dinner tonight and uh, say a prayer for the people of Ukraine. Uh, Pray that, uh, and we'll get to these stories as well, but uh, (laughs) pray for uh, Lindsey Graham's request that somebody take out Putin. Uh, By the way, uh, from earlier this morning, Rafael Marino uh, Mariano, I should say, Grossi, Director uh, General for the International Atomic Energy Agency, confirmed in a press conference that the shelling that came on that nuclear plant hit a training building, but uh, the good news is there was no compromise of the actual reactors. There's no radiation leak. Now, that's not to say that the Russians wouldn't do that. I mean, (laughs) the fact that you would shell a building right next to the reactors isn't uh, a real wise move. We'll get to more of that later in the program. Carolina Journal is reporting something that we told you about a week ago. We had some inside information that this was going to happen, and indeed it has. The state legislature leaders, the Republicans in the state legislature of North Carolina, have made an appeal concerning the congressional maps to the United States Supreme Court. Carolina Journal is reporting that um, in their request, they have said the elections clause of the United States Constitution provides that, quote, the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Absent prompt action by this court, North Carolina's 2022 congressional elections will be conducted in defiance of this constitutional command. This was the brief that was filed yesterday by the Republican legislative leaders. That is because the courts of North Carolina have not once but twice invalidated the congressional maps drawn by the North Carolina General Assembly and have now replaced them with their own judicially preferred map, the brief continues. The new court filing arrives the day after plaintiffs in North Carolina's legal fight over election maps urge the United States Supreme Court to stay out of the dispute. They would be the Democrats. Plaintiffs argue that the high court would be ignoring precedent. They say the justices would be interfering with states' courts' interpretation of the North Carolina Constitution. And that is precisely why Phil Berger and Tim Moore and uh, the attorneys writing this brief referred to the United States Constitution that the North Carolina courts are interfering with. Lawyers working for the Democrat North Carolina Attorney General Josh Stein also opposed the action from the U.S. Supreme Court. Stein's North Carolina Justice Department lawyers represent the State Board of Elections in this case. Of course, Josh Stein was also right there with the board when they elected last year 
to circumvent the North Carolina legislature and create their old their own rules as it relates to what was going to be lawful for the last year's general election. Respondents insist, this would be the Republicans, that the immediate action by this court enforcing the plain meaning of the election clause will so, uh, I'm sorry, the respondents, these would be the Democrats, insist that the immediate action by this court enforcing the plain meaning of the election clause will sow chaos in the administration of North Carolina's 2022 elections. Lawmakers dispute the argument that the Supreme Court's involvement in the case would endanger North Carolina's May 17th primary, while the State Board of Education informed the North Carolina courts that it would be preferable for a candidate filing for the primary to close on March the 4th if it indicated that if it's necessary, the primary could be administered with a filing deadline as late as March the 15th. This court should not allow the governor's veto, coupled with the state court's pursuit of a course of action, carefully timed to run out the clock on the deadlines asserted by the executive branch to preclude review in this case. Legislators also push back against the argument that the United States Supreme Court ruling would force sweeping changes in election law nationwide. Quote, all the court need to hold to the rule of the, in the applicant's favor is that the election clause does not allow a state court to usurp the General Assembly authority under that provision by seizing upon an abstract and broadly worded provision of the state's constitution to impose its own policy determinations. Now, if the United States Supreme Court rules in favor of the Republicans in the legislature, the majority of the legislature, uh, the maps are drawn. They could just go back to the previous maps that the that the um, Republicans submitted, that the legislature submitted to the courts. We're good to go. Um, I, I, we're going to be talking to Hans von Spakowski in a few minutes, and among other things, we're primarily going to be talking to him about the Supreme Court nomination by Joe Biden, but uh, I do want to ask him about this as well. Also, the Carolina Journal is reporting the North Carolina Supreme Court has agreed to take up a lawsuit challenging North Carolina's voter ID law. The high court's decision removes the case from the Court of Appeals and places it on a faster track for the final resolution. This is exactly what they did in the uh, MAPS case. And, And again, they're treating this as if this is normal protocol. It's not. I mean, typically the courts allow litigation to go through the lower courts first. Now, I understand that some people are going to say, hey, this is a big deal. It's, it's, well, action from the Supreme Court this year could be significant. Democrats hold a 4-3 majority among the court's justices, but two Democrat seats are up for election in 2022. That didn't seem to stop them in the MAPS case. Had the case followed the standard path through the appeal of courts, it's possible a suit would not have reached the Supreme Court until after the election. Republicans outnumber Democrats 10-5 on the appeals court. So chances are, had this gone to the Supreme uh, to the appeals court first, the voter ID would have been upheld. And at that point, you would have had some precedent that you would have had one election, two elections actually under your belt, the primary and the general election, where you would have voter ID and the world would not have come to an end. A brief ordered Wednesday confirmed the Supreme Court's decision to hear the voter ID case in a separate order issued Tuesday. Justice Tamara Berenger, Republican, denied voter ID critics a request that she step away from the case 
She was a state senator when the law passed back in 2018. The request for the Supreme Court action arrived on January the 14th from critics challenging the voter ID law. While defendants proceeded to the appeals court, the January 14th request asked the Supreme Court justices to skip that intermediate court, which naturally they gladly did because these were the Eric Holder folks, the ultra-libs, asking ultra-libs on the Supreme Court to please give us our way, and they said, sure, anything to oblige. The facts in the law have been fully developed and carefully analyzed, wrote attorney Jeffrey Leberfido of the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. Representing the plaintiffs, additional review in the Court of Appeals will result only in further and detrimental delay. Yeah, detrimental to your cause. <laughs> Legislative defendants objected to the Supreme Court stepping into the case at this point. Plaintiffs do not hide the reason they want to press fast forward a potential reversal of the trial court's judgment by the Court of Appeals. According to a brief from legislators' attorneys, quote, this court should reject plaintiff's transparent attempt to invoke this, invoke this court's extraordinary power to alter the normal appellate review process based on nothing more than ordinary forum shopping. <laughs> That's it. They're judge shopping. They know they're going to lose at the appellate level and then they're going to win at the Supreme Court level. In this case, named Holmes versus Moore, one of the three active lawsuits involving the North Carolina and voter identification, the state Supreme Court already heard oral arguments on February the 14th in a second case related to voter ID. That case, North Carolina NAACP versus Moore, seeks to overturn a 2018 constitutional amendment guaranteeing voter ID. And again, remember Anita Earls, one of the Supreme Court justices who's a Democrat, was actually working for the NAACP when the, in the early days of this case. A third suit challenges North Carolina voter ID law in federal court, a trial that suit had been scheduled for January. It was pushed back when the Supreme Court of the United States agreed to consider whether the Republican legislative leaders would be able to intervene in the federal dispute, oral arguments in the nation's highest courts are scheduled. This would be the Supreme Court of the United States is scheduled for March the 21st. There is no date yet for the hearing of the Holmes versus Moore at the North Carolina Supreme Court. I fully expect our North Carolina Supreme Court to do uh, concerning the voter ID case exactly what they did in the MAPS case. And they will give Eric Holder's crowd exactly what they want. Now, what's interesting about the voter ID case is this was actually a constitutional amendment that the people of North Carolina voted on. So it's going to be a little bit harder for the Supreme Court to come back and say, well, this goes against the will of the people, uh, which is basically what they said in the, in the MAPS case, that you can't do this because you're, you're usurping what the will of the people are. Now, how they know that, I don't know. When the will of the people put those people, the, those legislators in office to begin with, it sounds to me like that was the will of the people. But when it comes to this uh, voter ID, the, the people of North Carolina voted on this as a constitutional amendment. But I fully expect they will uh, take what they have and uh, say, Eric Holder, Yes, sir. Read Bob. We'll give you whatever you want. And again, this needs to be motivation to get out and campaign and vote for constitutional justices on our North Carolina Supreme Court. Interesting uh, comments by Lindsey Graham. You heard that audio clip Clark put together for the uh, opening uh, bumper. 
Washington Times is reporting Lindsey Graham calls for Putin's assassination. That basically is what he called for. Uh, I can't say that uh, I disagree with his uh, theory that when he said this is the only way this ends. Lindsey Graham called Thursday night for the assassination of Vladimir Putin over a couple of tweets Mr. Graham cited as role models, the German officer who tried to kill Adolf Hitler in 1944 and the Roman senator who helped kill Julius Caesar. Is there a, Bu- a Brutus in Russia? Is there a more successful Colonel Stauffenberg in the Russian military? This is the only way this ends for somebody in Russia to take this guy out, he wrote. Mr. Graham said that such an assassin would be doing your country and the world a great service. The senator Uh, The senator acknowledged the difficulty of doing such a thing. Easy to say, hard to do, he wrote. At a couple of recent meetings with his war advisors, Mr. Putin was photographed alone at the end of an absurdly long table. I mean, mean, you've seen those photographs. I mean, you've got to have an intercom system to carry on a conversation. When he was meeting with the French uh, president, Macron, literally, you you couldn't throw a football from one end of the table to the other. Um, interestingly, so Lindsey Graham calls for Putin to be knocked off. The Daily Caller is reporting a Russian born businessman announced he would pay a million dollar bounty to officers who would arrest Vladimir Putin. Alex Konani Ken Konani Ken wrote on Facebook, I promise to pay $1 million to the officers who, complying with their constitutional duty, arrest Putin as a warm criminal under Russian and international laws. Putin is not the Russian president as he came to power as the result of a special operation of blowing up apartment buildings in Russia, then violated the Constitution by eliminating free elections and murdering his opponents. As an ethnic Russian and a Russian citizen, I see it as my moral duty to facilitate the denazification of Russia. Interesting, he's using the same language that uh, uh, the the Russian uh, oligarchs that are pro-Putin are using. I will continue my assistance to Ukraine in its heroic efforts to withstand the onslaught of Putin's orda. Orda meaning horde. Um, This particular oligarch told Business Insider, if there, if enough other people make similar statements, it may increase the chances of Putin getting arrested and brought to justice. Now, interestingly, yesterday I mentioned to you that there is more and more pressure on these oligarchs to do the right thing. I mean, A, they're, they're losing money big time, but B, these oligarchs could be charged as co-conspirators with Putin on war crimes. Now, I, I don't know that this would apply to this individual, but the Daily Caller is reporting that a Ukrainian-born oligarch, Mikhail w- uh, Wadford, Watford, was found hung in his United Kingdom's largest state on Monday. Watford, 66, an oil and gas tycoon, was found dead at his home, unexplained but not considered suspicious, according to British law enforcement. Authorities were called to his home after his body was discovered by a gardener. The Sun reported that Watford is Russian. 
He was born in Ukraine in 1955 before the fall of the Soviet Union. He was uh, survived by three children and his Estonian wife, Jane, according to reports. The oligarch's mother lived in a neighboring apartment to his villa-styled home and allegedly insisted on keeping her Soviet ID after leaving Ukraine. In 2015, an interview with the Sunday Times, Wadford said his mother strongly believes communists will be back to Russia and Ukraine. We are praying her dream never comes true, he said. British Foreign Secretary Liz Trust announced on February the 27th that she has a hit list of Russian oligarchs who will face sanctions in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. According to The Guardian, they said, we are targeting oligarchs' private jets. We'll be targeting their properties. We'll be targeting their possessions they have. Uh, there will be nowhere to hide. Why he would uh, take his life, I don't know that that's directly related to that, but good possibility. Hey, we're going to take a time out. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Hans von Spakowski. We're going to be talking about the uh, president's new nominee for the Supreme Court, along with some other political matters. Stay with us. News and Views continues right after this. This is your Drive at Five, an ENC with Tom Lamprecht. Welcome back to News and Views on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Welcome back again. Hans von Spakowski is an American attorney and a former member of the Federal Elections Commission. He is the manager of the Heritage Foundation's Election Law Reform Initiative and senior legal fellow in the Heritage's Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. He's back with us. Hans, welcome back to News and Views. Good to have you with us. Tom, thanks for having me back. Two of your colleagues, John Malcolm and uh, Thomas Jipping, have written an interesting uh, article in the last uh, few days, What Senators Must Ask Supreme Court Nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson. One of the things they wrote in there was just the fact that, and it's sort of interesting because when Donald Trump had his nominees, liberals were very, very upset that he would go to organizations such as the Heritage Foundation to get recommendations for individuals that he might consider for the Supreme Court. And yet we see Joe Biden doing the same thing. And uh, apparently there's there's no problem if Joe Biden has certain organizations, certain liberal organizations he goes to for uh, his selections. Well, yeah, but as you know, that's the standard hypocrisy you run into (laughs) in Washington, D.C., all all the time. And in fact, look, um, with with Jackson, the progressive left has gotten exactly who they want on the Supreme Court. I mean, she's she's being supported and praised by every liberal activist group in America from unions like the AFL-CIO and the National Education Association, to the People for the American Way, even the Southern Poverty Law Center. And you have to think, well, why is that? Well, I-, I can tell you, because if you look at her career, she's only been on the Court of Appeals for a year in the District of Columbia, but she was a federal district court judge, which is basically the trial level, for eight years. And if you look at her decision-making, um, Look, at one point she was asked if she had a judicial philosophy. She said no. <laughs> but her judicial philosophy, you look at her court decisions, is um, if there's a liberal group in front of me with a liberal cause, 
I'm going to find in their favor no matter what the law or the Constitution says. And you can see that in case after case after case. What should the Republicans ask as they um, go, uh, as she goes through the process of being confirmed or denied? And do you think there's a a possibility that we could have a Joe Manchin come over and uh, say, no, I don't think she's the person? Unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. I think that even if there was a 50-50 tie, I think the Democrats would stay solid because uh, they want this kind of uh, very liberal justice on the court who's going to give them the kind of political decisions they want. But they need to ask her questions about all kinds of things. I mean, I'll give you one quick example. Um, Look, when she was in private practice, she volunteered to to file a an amicus brief on behalf of all these pro-abortion groups in which she argued, if you could believe this, that there ought to be this floating buffer zone around abortion clinics where the First Amendment does not apply. (laughs) So even people who are there peacefully should not be able to express their opinions that, you know, abortion is wrong. Yet when she was a judge, she issued a decision um, saying uh, that the anti-panhandling law in the District of Columbia, she threw it out because she said it was a violation of the First Amendment. Now, I don't know how you can style, uh, reconcile those two views, but she needs to be asked. So you, you, you think, uh, Judge Jackson, that there's not a First Amendment right to speak about, to speak against abortion or at abortion clinics, but you do think there's a First Amendment right to beg and solicit money on the streets of Washington. I mean, like I said, how do you explain those two views? I have heard, and you're going to know the answer to this, I have heard, but I haven't actually read the the cases, that she has been, on more than one occasion, had her decisions overturned by either her peers, the the en banc court, or by uh, higher courts. Is that correct? It is. In fact, when she was a uh, district court judge, like I said, for eight years, she was one of the most frequently reversed judges on the D.C. circuit. And and you could see this most recently in she's also clearly an anti-Trumper. So anytime there was any case before her that involved uh, Donald Trump's policies of his administration, she always ruled against it. And the one of the last times she did this, um, uh, she overruled presidential immunity, which is a basic, you know, uh, constitutional requirement, to say that uh, Donald Trump's lawyer in the White House, White House Counsel Don McGahn, had to testify before the House Judiciary Committee, which had subpoenaed him. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is controlled by liberal judges, reversed her saying that uh, unelected and unaccountable federal judges should not interfere in this kind of a political issue. So they, even the liberal justices, were pretty critical of her, basically saying she was acting as an unelected, unaccountable federal judge to get into a political matter. You know, it's interesting. That brings up a larger matter, and that is these justices that are, want to push the progressive agenda. And again, your peers, uh, John Malcolm and Thomas Jipping, said one of the questions they need to ask, well, is she committed to faithfully applying the Constitution and statutes? Uh, you know, that we have a North Carolina Supreme Court justice down here, 
And she has basically just ignored the federal constitution and the state constitution as it relies to these uh, congressional and state district maps. And just just ignoring the constitution, which I've said on the air a number of times, this is this is anarchy. I mean, if you're not going to follow the rule of law and just make it up as you go along, it's anarchy. But it appears to me that there's a lot of similarities between uh, Brown Jackson and Anita Earls down here uh, just saying, I'm going to do what I darn well please, and I don't really care what the uh, fallout of it is. And if I'm corrected, so be it. But I mean, how can how can we how can we legally keep? I mean, is impeachment? I guess is the only way to to keep uh, individuals like this from continuing to do what they do. Well, I uh, I I know the resemblance, and I know who you're talking. About. Wasn't it Anita Earl that uh, labeled herself as a social justice warrior? I think she did. Oh yeah, and, oh, uh, yeah. oh yeah. I think I think uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson is exactly exactly the same, and is going to act exactly the same. In fact, I I can guarantee you that if she's confirmed, which unfortunately seems highly likely, that she will probably end up being the most left-wing radical member of the Supreme Court we've had in our entire history, even to the left of Sonia Sotomayor, who is currently the most uh, left-wing member of the Supreme Court. And, I, you know, it's hard. It, 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 it's very frustrating. It's annoying when people like this get on the court, people who don't believe in the rule of law and, and the Constitution, whether it's a state court, state Supreme Court, or the, the U.S. Supreme Court. But what Look, what's going on is these are the kind of judges that the liberal side of the political aisle wants on the courts because uh, they see the courts as a way, it's very anti-democratic, they see a way, they see the courts as a way to get around the democratic process. In other words, if they can't convince, for example, a state legislature to pass a law, to pass the policies they want, well, then they, they then go to the court and they uh, ask courts to force a state and its residents to do what they want done. And that's that's what the, that's what this whole movement is from the left. Well, and it's not new. I mean, that's how we got Roe v. Wade, right? Yes. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. Let me change gears a little bit with you and talk about um, the situation down here in North Carolina. I don't know if you got my uh, text earlier today with that article out of the Carolina Journal but uh, the the United States, well, the North Carolina state legislature has now appealed to the United States Supreme Court concerning our uh, district maps and and well, no, I'm, I take that back. Concerning our congressional maps, the uh, the district maps and the, the the House maps and the state Senate maps are are, are for for this election are, are intact, but they have made an appeal to the United States Supreme Court. Um, in in the, the brief that was filed, they say the elections clause of the United States Constitution provides that the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the state legislature thereof. Uh, pretty clear what the United States Constitution talks about. D- do you see now the, the, the Supreme Court has been hesitant to pick up these state issues. Does uh, now twice twice the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court has said, okay, we're going to intervene and change your maps, uh, congressional maps. Do you, do you see the Supreme Court picking this up and running with it? I don't know, because I think um, 
the North Carolina Supreme Court is basing it on their misinterpretation of your state's constitution. I believe that's the case. That's, that is correct. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, usually the U.S. Supreme Court does not step in in cases like that because the state Supreme Court is, you know, considered the um, the ultimate authority on the state constitution. The, the only time the Supreme Court usually will step in in a situation like that is if the state constitution or its interpretation by the state Supreme Court actually violates a provision of the U.S. Constitution, which has uh, uh, greater authority. You know, you, you can't write a con- state constitutional provision that's, that violates the U.S. Constitution, and, well, and unless again, it's that situation. And again, I think that's what the, the, this brief is trying to get at, that they're citing the yeah. United States Constitution. But you think it's, yeah, it's so, a long shot? So they might, they might take it, but it's... Uh, it's a chancy, it's a chancy appeal. I mean, I hope they're effective. I think, you know, look, what's happening with the North Carolina Supreme Court is the same thing that has happened with the state Supreme Court, for example, in Pennsylvania. Right. It's currently going on with the Kansas State Supreme Court, where um, they elect these uh, basically um, uh, activists to be judges who then suddenly discover an un, un, previously undiscovered right in the Constitution that they use to push their political agenda, in this case, basically uh, trying to draw maps that will favor their political party. Well, and Eric Holder has his fingerprints over all three states. In fact, he gave Anita Earls yes. a, a contribution of $250,000 for her campaign to become a United uh, a North Carolina Supreme Court justice. Right. Look, the, the one good thing about uh, state court judges, for example, in North Carolina is that they're elected. <laughs> you can try to get rid of them in the next election, which unfortunately we can't do when bad people get confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Do you see the U.S. Supreme Court for the remain? I mean, uh, barring um, some someone's uh, untimely passing, do you see the Supreme Court of the United States staying in place for the remainder of uh, Joe Biden's uh, presidency or for this term anyway? Uh, yes, uh, there's, I have not heard a single word about, um, any of the other justices like Justice Thomas or anyone else having any plans to resign. Although I don't know if you realize, but, you know, Clarence Thomas, um, not too long ago celebrated his 30th year on the court. So he's been there a long time. That, that is hard to believe it's been 30 years. I, I, yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, um, Overall election integrity uh, going into the midterms, and more importantly, going into 2024, do you see uh, state legislatures across the country taking uh, steps to make sure that we have a equitable, fair election without a, any hint of improprieties coming up? Yeah, things are greatly improved. And you know this by the fact that uh, – Democratic leaders like um, the president and Chuck Schumer have been complaining. <laughs> They've been complaining about what state legislatures have done. I think when when uh, Joe Biden gave his speech in Atlanta some uh, some time ago, in which he made all these uh, frankly fraudulent claims that uh, all the states passing these reforms were in the same camp as Jefferson Davis, you know, yeah. the former yeah. head of the Confederacy, he, he cited like 19 states. And those are 19 states, 
uh, places like Georgia, Florida, Texas, uh, Arizona, and others, that their legislatures have passed good election reform. They've, they've done good things. Uh, for example, Georgia um, uh, and Texas extended their voter ID laws, which only applied to in-person voting, to absentee balloting, which is a necessary thing to do. So, so things are improved. Now, you know, some states are still really bad, like New York and California, uh, which seem to be doing everything they can to worsen uh, election integrity in their states. But other states have done a lot to improve it. Have you been following at all these reports out of Wisconsin and Georgia that they're beginning to dig down a little bit deeper into the improprieties that might have taken place in the last general yeah. election? What are your thoughts on yeah, those? Yeah, and in fact, the, yeah, in Wisconsin, you know, the former state Supreme Court judge has right. been conducting the investigation, and he has found all kinds of problems and issues. Uh, he's just issued his first, I think, reports on it, and that he raises issues that now need to be investigated by the state legislature. And and uh, uh, the state legislature needs to use those investigations to figure out how they need to fix their laws to make sure those kind of things don't happen again. What do you think, if the state legislature picks up and runs with it, uh, other, other than fixing things so it doesn't happen again, do you see anything else happening uh, retroactively to the la- to the previous general election? No, and the reasons for that is that uh, it, it's look, it's too you can't uncertify an election. You know, once it's been certified, uh, you can't go back and overturn it. The the period, uh, the deadlines for filing a lawsuit to overturn an election are very short in every state. Those are all long gone. All they can do is fix their laws, their rules, or regulations to make sure that the problems that they have found hopefully don't happen again in the next election. Would you say that the mainstream media owes uh, Donald Trump an apology? Well, I think what they do owe is an apology, not just to him, but to everyone who raised concerns yeah. about what they saw happening in the 2020 election. And the media has has constantly just dismissed it Of course, they're doing the same thing with this report out of Wisconsin. Look, these are lengthy reports, and yet almost as soon as they were out, before the reporters clearly even had time to read them, they were already dismissing them in the major newspapers and media outlets. They don't want to actually have any real investigations or real audits done uh, uh, because I, I think they're afraid it destroys their story that they've been pushing, that the 2020 election was why the most perfect election in American history. (laughs) It is laughable. Unbelievable. Yeah. Hans von Spakowski of the Heritage Foundation. Hans, thanks so much for joining us. And boy, can I encourage our people to support uh, the Heritage Foundation? You guys do a great job and you're on the forefront of this and you've always been very uh, helpful to us and coming on the air and explaining these things to our audience. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate that very much. You bet. Have a great weekend. Stay with us. News and Views continues right after this. Back to News and Views. Talk 96.3 and 103.7. 161 years ago. 
1861, on this day, Abraham Lincoln was inaugurated as our 16th president. Just prior to the war between the states in his inaugural speech, he said, We are not enemies but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. And uh, just months later, the war broke out. Take a quick look at your weather forecast. Tonight, increasingly cloud, uh, cloudy, a high, around, a high, a low around 42. A Saturday looks good. Uh, not a lot of sunshine, but it will be warm around 70 degrees. Uh, Sunday, partly sunny with a high near 80. So all in all, pretty nice weather over the weekend. Weather brought to you by our friends at the Ironwood Golf and Country Club. Warmer weather is right around the corner. What a better way to enjoy the outdoors with family and friends than being greenside or poolside. Voted best golf course in Greenville three years in a row, Ironwood Golf and Country Club is waiving all initiation fees. They want you to join in the fun and become a member today. Not a golfer? Ironwood's new social membership includes access to their competition-sized swimming pool, clay surface tennis courts, and member-only full-service dining at their restaurant. For more information, contact membership director Jenna Doyle. Her number is 252-752-4653. Well, while Russia wages a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, the Army here in the United States is putting its soldiers through a training on gender pronouns and coaching officers when to offer soldiers gender transition surgery, according to an official military presentation on the subject obtained by the Washington Free Beacon. The mandatory presentation policy on the military service of transgender persons and persons with gender dysphoria was given to officers earlier this month, along with instructions for them to train their subordinates. An Army spokesman confirmed to the Free Beacon that the slides in question uh, from the presentation, which were provided to the Free Free Beacon, are a part of a mandatory training coming from an official program used to train Army personnel on recent changes to the Department of Defense and the Army transgender service policies. The transgender presentation follows a June 2021 announcement by the Army altering its policies so that transgender soldiers can openly serve. These efforts have prompted pushback from Republicans in Congress who view the policy changes as an effort to promote woke propaganda. You think? As Russian invades Ukraine, we're worried about transgenders. (laughs) Yeah, we don't want your high heels to get in the way of the conflict. Um, This is is so telling. Dakota Wood, a Marine Corps veteran who specializes in defense issues at the Heritage Foundation, think tank, said the Army presentation employs language primarily used by those on the progressive left. Quote, a telling phrase in the presentation, assigned male or female at birth, reveals that whoever developed the presentation material and the policy being implemented accepts the argument that gender is an, uh, an artificial construct rather than a biological reality, Wood said. This is a highly controversial argument promoted by the progressive left and rejected by the conservative right. These policies threaten to erode cohesion among soldiers. Uh, yeah, I, this all begs the question, if what we see happening in Ukraine were happening in the United States right now, would we have the fortitude and courage to fight for our country? 
would we fight for our freedom? Would we fight for our liberty? Or would we be so worried about offending a transgender in the military that uh, the enemy would just waltz in and take us apart? And by the way, let me also say that this approach by the Biden administration is the exact reason why Putin is attacking. While Cousin Eddie is in the White House, he is saying, okay, you guys aren't really serious. I mean, he's not taking us serious as a serious adversary. He's looking at us and saying, yeah, you continue to worry about your uh, transgender issues while I wipe out an entire country. Unbelievable. I, I, I seriously doubt if the Ukrainians right now are uh, overly concerned about whether a transgender is offended as they fight for their home country. Stay with us. We'll be right back. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. First thing you should do after work. I turn on the radio. Check in with Tom and Benny. Gotta know what's happening in my city. What's going on in my backyard. Things that are happening locally. I like the local news. Things that I don't hear everywhere else. I don't hear everywhere else. For the local news you want. Kept me informed for all of the local stuff, you know. It let me know what was going on in the local community. Eastern Carolina's news source is new. Welcome back in. <laughs> it sounded like your news source is nude. Uh, yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> that's what happened. Oh, uh, yes. Love live, live radio. Um, I mentioned this last week, but I wanted to go back to it again because I want our folks to listen and, and respond. Catherine Truitt, superintendent for North Carolina Department of Education, Department of Instruction, is giving parents a platform through a new parent advisory commission. The commission is focused on giving parents a seat at the table and strengthening parent and family involvement in education. Now, Truitt is a Republican, so this sort of goes against the uh, narrative from the Democrats that say you shouldn't have anything to do with your child's education. Parents from across the state can apply through March the 31st. The application can be found on the Department of Public Instruction's website. That is www.dpi.nc.gov. Or you can call 984-236-2100. The 48-member advisory board will include six parents or guardians from each of the state's eight educational regions to ensure diverse geographical participation. Again, that's www.dpi.nc.gov, or you can call 984-236-2100. Speaking of schools, um, you might have seen how Governor Ron DeSantis is being vilified as an adult bully to students because he told students you don't have to wear masks. They're useless. Here's what he said earlier this week. You do not have to wear those masks. I mean, please take them off. <laughs> Honestly, it's not doing anything, and we got to stop with this COVID theater. So if you want to wear it, fine, but this is, a, this is ridiculous. That's it. And for that, he is being vilified. I mean, every liberal news outlet is playing him up as if Hitler has come back in the body of Ron DeSantis. And yet at the same time in Florida... In politics in Florida, there is truly a bully running against Marco Rubio. But yet they won't touch his story with a 10-foot pole. Joshua Wheel, 
launched his Senate campaign against Rubio in December of 2020, touting his, statute, his status rather as a proud father, a high school math teacher, and Florida's progressive choice for the U.S. Senate in 2022. However, employment records from his time at Orlando's Orange Youth Academy shows that this Democrat's teaching background may impair his quest for federal office, not strengthen it. According to emails obtained by the Free Beacon, he faced a three-day suspension in July of 2015 after he slammed a student to the ground. The school's incident report confirms the ordeal. But that wasn't the only time he got in trouble. Will also was the subject of a complaint as an Orange Youth Academy teacher. According to a March 2015 email, he repeatedly tormented a female colleague who said the behavior, his behavior made her very uncomfortable, negative impact, multiple occasions. He would stick to physically, he used a stick to physically prod her. He would also block the teacher the doorway with his body to prevent her from leaving the classroom. Uh, he told his colleague she couldn't leave and physically poked her as he tried to unlock her door. I mean, this guy really does sound, truly does sound like a jerk of a bully. She's, the, the female teacher said, I'm very uncomfortable with him touching me, and I'm also very uncomfortable with him, uh, with I having to put my hands on him to push him out of the way. Uh, well, now listen to his platform, because this tells you why the mainstream media won't report on this guy, but does report on DeSantis. His platform consists of a number of left-wing policy positions. He boasts that he supports Medicare for all, a universal basic income. His campaign site calls for reparations programs that would cost a minimum of $20 trillion. He also wants to eliminate student debt, decriminalize sex work, and all drug-related offenses, ensure access to puberty blockers for all trans kids, and lift all current sanctions and embargoes currently in effect on other nations, chief among them our neighboring nation of Cuba. In June of 2021, um, he accused Israel of genocide. <laughs> I mean, he's right there with AOC. And now if it worked for AOC, is it going to work for this guy? I don't think so. I don't think the state of Florida is going to set aside Marco Rubio for Joshua Wheel. Going out on a limb there. But this is why the mainstream media, why they vilify Ron DeSantis, calling him a bully because he told the kids, hey, you don't have to wear these masks. You can take them off. The irony is... Ron DeSantis is not the bully. Ron DeSantis is saving these kids from the bullies that mandated you must wear these useless masks. They don't do any good, but you don't dare not do what we tell you to do. When the true bullies say jump, you're supposed to say how high on the way up. Uh, Ron DeSantis very well might be our next president. Don't know for sure, but very well might be. Hey, our thanks go out to Hans von Spakowski for joining us this, uh, this afternoon and uh, giving us his insight on the uh, Supreme Court nominee and on election law. And uh, have a great weekend. It's going to be nice out, so get out and enjoy, and we will do it all again at 5 o'clock on Monday. See you then. Bye-bye, everybody. All right, all right, all right.